Would your life be better or worse if you had just a little more sleep? Would your life be better or worse if you got a little more sleep? It's a very dangerous question for a preacher to begin with, isn't it? Some of you have been looking forward all morning to these next 30 minutes or so when you can catch up on a little nap. We all know, don't we, how much we need sleep. And yet it's one of those great mysteries of science. Though studies have done a lot to understand what happens in our bodies and our brains as we sleep, scientists still yet struggle to give a coherent answer to the question, why do we sleep? Presumably those hard-working scientists have lost countless hours of sleep themselves as they pursued the answers. And yet the Healthy Sleep Project at Harvard Medical School has gone so far as to say that the question is likely unanswerable. We know what happens in our bodies as we sleep, and yet we don't really know why we sleep. We don't know why we sleep, and yet we all know, don't we, that we need to sleep. Lacking sleep makes us grumpy. It makes us lacking in energy. It makes us able to think less clearly. It makes us more prone to making mistakes, and it makes us generally unpleasant to be around. And yet, even if we're getting all this sleep that we need, we all know, don't we, that a holiday does us the world of good. Just as our bodies need sleep, so in the same way our souls need rest. And so we go through life, don't we? Keeping telling ourselves that this next month or two or so, they're quite busy. But after that, there's coming a quieter spell. And yet that quieter spell that we're so looking forward to just never seems to come. So many of us go through life, don't we? From crisis to crisis, with the rest that we long for just over the horizon and never actually coming. And so in one way or another, don't we, all of us, long for a rest that just seems to elude our grasp? Sometimes it's from external pressures, isn't it? From the responsibilities that keep us from finding that deep rest that we want. Whether it's looking after younger children or looking after older children. Whether it's the demands of work or caring for aging parents or spouses, whether it's insomnia or some kind of illness, all these pressures, they keep us from finding the rest that we want, don't they? And yet, even if we suffer with none of these things, we all of us have a deep restlessness that comes from within. Some of us feel very acutely, don't we, the restlessness of national events, Constantly refreshing the news to see the updates on whatever the latest by-election or breaking scandal or international emergency. But all of us, we find it hardest to rest, don't we? Not just from those external pressures, but we find it hardest to rest when we've had a fight. When we've hurt those that we love. The restlessness we feel in strife and intention, wondering as we lie awake, why did I say that? 
How could I have done that thing to the people I so love? Well, the Bible tells us that true rest is not just a well-slept body, as important as that is. True rest goes beyond even a peaceful mind. True rest is a state of our souls, of our entire being. And so we have the question, where will we find rest in a restless world? Well, in this section of Matthew's gospel that we're looking at this morning, Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is the one who can give us true and lasting rest. And so we're going to consider three questions as we listen to what Matthew has to say to us about Jesus and all the rest. So three questions. First of all, how do we get it? How do we get this rest? Well, that's chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. How do we get this rest? Where will we find rest in a restless world? We're bombarded with ways to rest, aren't we? Come to our holiday resorts, they say. It's the most peaceful around. Or take up this new hobby and relieve all your stress. Or spend 10 minutes a day thinking about nothing and find inner peace. Whatever the real benefits that all of these have, Jesus has a much simpler offer for us. He says it's not a place that you have to go, not an activity that you have to pursue, not a skill that you need to master. How will you get rest? Well, look there at chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, I will give it to you. All you have to do is to come to Jesus and receive it. That's his invitation to all who would labor and are heavy burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. It's his invitation to all of us who are toiling to find the rest that we long for. The invitation that Jesus gives to all of us who are so burned out and weighed down by life that we just feel in one way or another burdened and heavy laden. Jesus knows this state of our souls. Do you hear his care and compassion? Jesus isn't angry at us for being restless. He's not disappointed that we're longing and searching. He just holds out to us this simple offer. Come, and he will give you rest. Verse 29, those beautiful words, he's gentle and lowly at heart. Jesus is not one who gives us rest and yet is fiery and aloof. He's not one who invites us to come to him and yet is impatient and stern. No, he tells us he's gentle and lowly. He's always willing to give rest to the weary. He hasn't come into our world to crack a whip and tell us to get on with it, but to come and to give us rest. Well, when I was a student, um, we had to clear out our halls every holiday. And so after my first term at university, I was getting the train home for Christmas. And being a student, and probably really being an Aberdonian, I decided that instead of paying for a taxi to take me and all my stuff to the station, I would just walk and carry it all. So there I was 
with all of my stuff setting out to catch my train. And for some reason, I had thought that it would be a sensible idea to take two different guitars home, along with all of my clothes to be washed, and all of the books and notes that I might need to study over the holidays. I don't think they ever came out of the bag, but I thought that they should come home anyway. And so with a little over a mile to the train station, well, that hadn't seemed like that much when I'd walked it before. But with my two guitars, all of my laundry, with all of my books, a mile to the train station, it was ambitious at best. Those first few hundred meters, they were fine. I could swap over my bags from hand to hand and keep going. But the further that I walked, the more I could tell I just wasn't going to make it. I kept struggling on, the bags and the cases getting heavier and heavier as I went. And now there was only a few hundred meters to go. I could see the train station down there at the end of the road, but I just knew I was never going to make it. I was at this stage having to put down the bags every few paces and stop for a minute or two's rest before heaving them up again, whilst others were rushing past on their way to catch their trains. And then, picking up the handle of one of the biggest and heaviest cases, a kindly stranger says, come on, we can do this together. And so together we hauled and we heaved and we got all my luggage to the station. With all my burden, with all my stuff, what I needed was someone to come alongside and help me, wasn't it? Is that like what Jesus offers us here? Well, it's not really, is it? Jesus doesn't come along and, and help us pick up our burdens and say, come to me and I'll, I'll help you out. No, he says, come and I'll give you rest. You take my light burden on yourself and I'll give you rest. For Jesus, if he was helping me with my luggage, he'd have come alongside and he'd have said, here, let me take all of your stuff, everything that's weighing you down, and you carry my stuff. I'm traveling light. I'll take all that's yours, and you just take what's mine. So come to Jesus, he says to us. Take up his way. Learn from him. Take his yoke upon you. That means he's inviting us to harness ourselves to him, to let him be our guide through life, to let him be our friend and our partner in life. And he says that when we do that, when we strap ourselves to him, we'll find rest. The rest that we've always been seeking. So if you're visiting here this morning and you're not someone who usually comes to church, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're someone who's never had this experience of giving all of your burdens over to Jesus. Well, you might be wondering, what exactly would this look like? After all, we don't actually go through life, do we, carrying cases and guitars and loads of stuff? Well, what would it look like for you to get this kind of rest in your life today? You couldn't be in a better room in Dundee to find out. Any of the members of this church would love to sit down with you after the service and to share with you what it would mean for you to have this rest in your life today. Or come and talk to me at the end or talk to any of the elders of the church and they'd love to share with you what it would look like for you. 
but we'll find out more as we keep going through the passage. But for those of us who are Christians this morning, this invitation's for us too, isn't it? Jesus is always inviting us to come to him. He never pushes us away. Whatever fresh burdens we've picked up this week, whatever heavy loads we're carrying, Jesus always says, come to him and find rest once more. Now, you may be wondering, as you're looking at the passage before you in your Bibles, well, that's all very well concerning verses 28 to 30. That's the easy bit, isn't it? But what about verses 25 to 27 of that section? Why does Jesus make this offer of rest just after announcing that no one can know God unless Jesus makes him known? These are completely different issues, aren't they? Finding rest for our souls and knowing God's. Well, hold that thought and we'll come back to it by the end. Jesus has this wonderful promise. He can give us rest. But we've had enough, haven't we, over the past few months of leaders who make to us grand promises that they cannot keep. So let's turn to our second question. Can Jesus really give us the rest that he says he'll give us? Can Jesus really give us this rest? That's chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. And it seems, as we're reading through Matthew's gospel, it seems, doesn't it, like there's a sudden change of topic in chapter 12. We go from Jesus speaking so intimately and closely into our souls to suddenly turning and having a rather dull controversy about some Jewish legislation. But as we consider this passage more closely, we'll see that, Jesus, that Matthew is not giving us a change of topic. Matthew, as he's writing his gospel to teach us what it is that Jesus has come to do, he's very carefully placed this episode right here and without a big number 12 in the middle as he wrote it. In verses 1 to 8 and 9 to 14, Matthew tells us about two conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day about the Sabbath. But this is not just any Old Testament law, is it? This is the law of rest. It's the fourth and the longest of all the Ten Commandments, which instructs God's people to uh, every seventh day of the week to do no work. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest for everyone and everything in the whole land of Israel. And so one day, as Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields, the disciples pick a few heads of corn and eat them. And as the Pharisees look on, they know that this violates the Sabbath. So they say to Jesus, verse 2, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus, in response, refers to two Old Testament stories as case studies. He quotes another passage from the prophet Hosea, and he makes two slightly enigmatic statements. So what's going on? Why has Matthew put this here? It might seem initially, mightn't it, as if Jesus is brushing away these overscrupulous Pharisees. Jesus is suggesting that it's, it's better to show mercy than to throw rocks. So let's leave aside the law and let's show mercy instead. 
But you see, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus makes this a much, much bigger issue than that. Do you notice what Jesus said about his disciples in verse 7? If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guilty. Oh, but that's not what Jesus says, is it? You would not have condemned the innocent, he says. And so do you see, Jesus isn't asking the Pharisees to show mercy to his disciples who have broken the law. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that his disciples are completely innocent, even though they're breaking the Sabbath. Well, what's going on here? How can Jesus say this? We've got to go right back to the start, right back to the beginning of our Bibles, to Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3, the very beginning of the Sabbath. This is what Moses writes in Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3 at the end of the creation account. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the Sabbath from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God's work of creation is artfully and elegantly presented. And there's a pattern and a rhythm that reflects the, the order and the structure of this beautiful universe that God has made. And so Moses tells us, for six days, God creates and he fills, and there was evening, and there was morning. Six days, six evenings, six mornings. But when it comes to day seven, when God has completed his work, he rests. And do you see what's missing? There's no morning, there's no evening. The seventh day doesn't end. God's rest in his perfect world is this ongoing state of his completed creation project. God's rest is his dwelling with his people in total harmony, living together in the serene beauty of the Garden of Eden. But in Genesis 3, human human beings bring an end to all this bliss by turning against God, by rebelling against his commands, by rejecting the God of life who has made a world of rest. And they put themselves under his curse and into a world of death and restlessness. And so God sent the people out of his presence, away from himself, away from the rest that he had given to them. And the rest was history. But he promised that one day, Through a human being, this state of rest would be restored. And as we keep going through the Old Testament, we find that later, God gave to the nation of Israel the tabernacle, which became the temple. And God made, didn't he, one place in all the world where he would dwell among his people. They couldn't just enter into his presence, but a glimpse of the rest of God dwelling with his people was back. And so this temple was to be filled with images of Eden's rest, trees and pomegranates, a great curtain with a cherubim blocking the way, reminding them that after Genesis 3, all of us live east of Eden, 
outside of the presence of God, away from his rest. And God gave them another sign, didn't he? The Sabbath. The seventh day of every week, they were to rest, following the pattern of God in creation, to remind themselves of why it was that God made the world and made them. To remind them that every single day was supposed to be enjoyed in the rest of dwelling with God. But because of our sin and because of our rebellion, we live in restlessness and death. But do you see what Jesus shows us? In the temple, there was no Sabbath. The priests did all their normal work on the Sabbath. And as Jesus says in verse 5, The priests doing all this labor and work on the Sabbath were innocent. So in the temple, there is no Sabbath. Because the temple is always the true and the better rest that the Sabbath is just a pointer to. And so God gave to his people these two pictures and a promise. One day, a king is going to come. And he's going to restore the reality that these things are pictures of. And then centuries later, a man and his disciples walking through the grain fields, picking corn and eating it. And Jesus says, they are innocent because something greater than the temple is here. Do you hear what he's saying? The temple and the Sabbath, they are pictures, signposts to God's true rest. And now something even greater is here. Now the reality has come. And he says to us, come to me and I will give you rest. Well, how can we be sure that Jesus really can give us this rest that he offers? Because coming to Jesus is returning to dwelling in the presence of God himself, isn't it? It's the world put right. It's the completion of all that we were made for. Jesus is the one who can give us true and lasting rest because he's greater than the temple. He's not just a signpost like the Sabbath. He's the Lord. He's the one that the Sabbath was always pointing us to. So, ah, we say, this is not just, is it, a legal dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees. Matthew is showing us so carefully and so clearly, Jesus really can give us rest. And so our third question, what will this rest look like? What will this rest look like? Well, that's chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. What will this rest that Jesus gives us look like? We all like to rest in different ways, don't we? So will Jesus' rest work for me? I have an uncle who worked for many years in the city of London. Every weekday, it was getting up early and getting home late, a long commute in on the train, and once he got there, a frantic and busy day in the high-paced world of the London financial district. And so at weekends, he desperately needed to get some rest. And for many years, his ideal weekend went something like this. He would leave work on a Friday, get home, sleep for a couple of hours, and then get in the car and drive through the night up to the northwest highlands of Scotland 
arriving there somewhere early in the hours of Saturday morning. And after driving all night, he would bag a few Monroes on the Saturday. He'd sleep in a tent on the Saturday nights, get a few more Monroes in on the Sunday, and then drive through the nights all the way home in time for a quick shower and jumping on the train to work on Monday morning. Does that sound like rest? Well, it was for him. But for some of us, a couple of long books and a box set and a large pot of tea, those are the elements of a real day of rest, aren't they? We all like to rest in different ways. So will the rest that Jesus offers, will that work for me? Well, in this second Sabbath controversy, Jesus encounters a man with a withered hand. It's a significant and severe disability, but it's not life-threatening, is it? Not life-threatening, but certainly life-altering. And the Pharisees challenge Jesus, verse 10. They ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And again, Jesus turns to a case study, doesn't he, verse 11? Wouldn't you help a sheep on on the Sabbath? So how much more a person? But again, Matthew wants us to know much more than just how we should interpret Jewish legislation. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you already know what the the Sabbath is all about. You'd exert all that effort and all that toil of helping your sheep. Because you know that the Sabbath isn't really just about rest. No, it's not just about rest. It's about restoration. It's about returning things to how they should be. It's a signpost to the restoration and the true life, the health of a restored relationship with God. And so, verse 13, at Jesus' word, this man stretches out his hand, and the withered hand is restored to full health. Here's Jesus showing us in a synagogue, in one hand span, what one day he's going to do for the whole cosmos. He's taking us back to Eden. He's taking us on to a far better Eden, a new creation, restored to life because God dwells with his people once again. This is the rest that Jesus offers to us. Not sitting quietly in a church or a temple, contemplating. The rest that brings restoration for the whole of creation. And so if we feel ourselves, our lives to be broken and withered, if we're feeling crippled by the weight of our sin, Jesus says to us, come to me and I will give you rest. Take, let me take all of your burdens and let me give you rest. Let me get you to where things were supposed to be from the very beginning. Let me take on myself all of the burdens of your sin and I'll carry them to my cross. Let me take the weight of your sin and your punishment on my shoulders. Let me take, Jesus says, the rejection, the exile from God that you deserve. Let me be forsaken, expelled from God's presence, in your place. And you, you in return, what will you do for me, he says. 
take my rest. And so starting now, but not yet fully known until he returns and restores the whole creation to its proper way, Jesus is saying to us, let him work his rest, his restoration, deep into our souls. So let's consider that question again that we looked at a few moments ago. What were verses 25 to 27 of chapter 11 all about? Jesus can help us know God. Only Jesus knows God, and he's the one who can give us rest. Do you see now? What does it mean for us to have rest? Well, yes, it it does mean restoration for us to all that we should be, but it means more than that, doesn't it? It means reconciliation. It means being restored to dwelling with God in his perfect rest once again. We can know God again through Jesus and only through Jesus because he is the one who brings us back to God. He's the one who brings us to no more rebellion against God and his ways, to no more war against our creator, to peace, to rest for our souls. Well, this is all that Jesus means, isn't it? When he says that we will find in him rest for our souls. That's the invitation that Jesus holds out for all of us this morning. The only way that we will find true and real rest is to receive it from him. He really can give it to us because he's the one who has promised to come and to restore our rest. The rest that he offers, it really will work for us because it's more than just a bit more sleep. It's more than a nice holiday, as wonderful as those things are. Jesus says that he will take his burdens on us and reconcile us with the God that we were made to know. That is what will bring true peace for our souls. And so for all of us who hear this offer from Jesus, come to me and I'll give you rest. There are only two ways for us to respond, aren't there? The first is the response of the Pharisees in chapter 12, verse 14. Do you see what the Pharisees do with this offer of rest, of reconciliation, of restoration? Verse 14, they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. To ignore Jesus' offer and his words of rest, it's to rid him from our lives, isn't it? It's to seek to destroy him and the rest that he would give us. But we'll never find rest for our souls by destroying the only one who can give it to us. And so the other option, come to Jesus. Find rest for your soul. The Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon lived a life with its fair share of hardships his exhausting labor to tell other people the good news of Jesus and all that he offers to us, it took a serious toll on his health. And in addition to that, Spurgeon gave himself unsparingly, took on great burdens of setting up charities, societies, orphanages, schools, trying to see in some small measure in Victorian London this restoration that Jesus will one day bring on a cosmic level trying to use the opportunity to meet people in their needs, 
to share with them the far greater news of an eternal rest. While Spurgeon's tireless service of Christ and the gospel left him often battling severe depression and he was forced to leave London many times for the sake of his health. And yet in the midst of all his busyness, of all his toil, Spurgeon would say that he knew this true and real rest of his soul. And so in the midst of illness and sickness, of burden and pain, on the 7th of June, 1891, he closed his final public sermon with these words. Jesus is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like amongst the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it too. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. These 40 years and more I have served him. Blessed be his name. I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in this same dear service here below, if it so pleased him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter upon it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus even this day. And so Jesus says to us, come to him, the one in all in whom we find everything that we're longing for. Come to him and find rest for your soul. Let's pray.